0: The rush that comes from being a professional athlete, from from being at the, the pinnacle of your sport where you're, you're pushing your body, you're pushing the limits of what's possible. And, you know, in my case, it was doing big tricks and in, in in backcountry, big mountain terrain and and doing things that that few people were doing. And when you pull something off that feels somewhat death defying, there's a rush that comes from that. That is the best feeling in the world. As I was making that transition, I was so afraid that that would be gone forever from my life. That I would never get that thrill again.
1: Those who are living a life of freedom have optimized themselves and their lives in pursuit of one thing, choice. They've created the financial, geographical and time freedom to do what they want when they want to. But they've also created freedom from their internal limitations, their story, their biology, and their character. In this podcast, The Freedom Project, it is my attempt to shortcut your learning curve to having total freedom in your life so you can go and do more cool shit. I'm going to bring you deep dives into some of the most inspiring adventure athletes and business owners in the world. I'm also going to give you the key concepts of my coaching process to adventurepreneurs so you can start applying that to your life today. So here is another episode of the Freedom Project. Meet the godfather of free skiing, Mike Douglas. Mike, alongside a handful of others, reinvented ski technology and therefore the future of skiing itself. After being instrumental in the creation of the twin-tip ski that unlocked a completely novel style of skiing, then becoming a mainstay of the pro skier scene, Mike turned his attention to creating ski films. In doing so, he became an icon of winter sports. He's gone on to produce ski films that do more than just produce ski porn, power shots and cliff drops. Mike tells stories, beautiful stories that enrich the viewer's experience of life through a broadened perspective. Along the way, Mike has set up a production business, hired and disbanded teams and produced genuinely world-changing films. All of this he did whilst keeping his sense of adventure and maintaining his freedom. In this episode, you will learn how to balance business ownership and adventure, how Mike had to readjust his business through COVID, the thrill of being vulnerable and how to embrace it, how the flow state of business corresponds to the flow state of free skiing and Mike's adventure bucket list. Love this episode, and I'm so glad I can bring it to you. Enjoy. Firstly, welcome to the show, man. Um, like I said earlier, it's a real privilege to be chatting with you.
0: Yeah, thank you. I'm happy to be here.
1: So, Mike, when someone asked you, what do you do, how do you describe that?
0: It's it's not easy. Um, I, I I guess the simplest version of it is uh, I'm, a, I'm a professional skier and a filmmaker,
1: Mm-hmm. And then, if someone goes, "Tell me more," what does that mean? Where'd you go with that?
0: Well, I, I I sort of dig into my ski history a little bit. I mean, that's that's my lineage, right? I started as a a passionate skier that turned into a pro skier, made it, managed to make a a, a life out of skiing, and through that vehicle of skiing, I've been able to branch out into to many different aspects whether it's uh, working on television or, or or public speaking or um, now filmmaking is sort of, of where I spend most of my time.
1: So you don't introduce yourself like everyone else does as the godfather of free skiing?
0: <laughs> no I, I try to leave that to others.
1: <laughs> you should do man you should get branded merch.
0: <laughs> Walk around talking like Marlon Brando.
1: that's exactly the one um we're not going to spend too much time on twin tips and 1080s and things but there's um one interesting thing that i'd like to go into detail that i haven't seen you speak about elsewhere and that's the idea that if you didn't get dropped by your sponsor you wouldn't have had the motivation to pursue it so like i'm basically interested in deviation points where you could have gone one way or the other what was the thing that made you go i'm going to pursue this and it's a worthwhile use of my time
0: yeah that's really interesting because often um, the best opportunities come from adversity, and that was definitely the case. I mean i was I was cruising along and living my dream as a you know what what I guess I'd call a professional mogul skier. I'd done a a stint on the Canadian team and and had moderate success, not as much success as I'd hoped for. but I'd you know done my five years there and decided to move on at one point. And started coaching and was a reasonably successful coach uh, here in Whistler and then got hired by the Canadian team and was coaching for them and at the same time I was you know still kind of a mogul skiing star in Japan oddly enough and so I would go over to Japan a few times a year and I'd do demos and I had a a video series that that I worked on every year that was sort of like you know kind of some flashy mogul skiing mixed with some technique and how to sort of things and and I was cruising along quite comfortably um between coaching and my sponsors who at the time you know were paying me modestly by today's standards but um but but enough to to live and and do all the things I wanted to do um things were good and then you know the the Japanese economy and particularly the ski business started to kind of Falter a little bit in the mid '90s, and my ski sponsor at the time, which was the the Austrian brand Kneisel, um they came to me and said, uh, "We're just giving you the heads up. We've we've had some cuts this year, and your contract will not be renewed in the fall." And so this is the spring at this point, and and I, you know, looking back, I was I I have to give them some credit. They gave me six months' notice that the cut was coming. So it kind of gives you some time to be like, oh boy, what am I going to do now? And I, you know, at the same time, um, myself and a group of friends and young skiers that I was coaching on the Canadian development team um, were trying these sort of snowboard style tricks on skis. And that was starting to gain some you know, momentum, like people we'd show up and people would be like, whoa, we've never seen stuff like this before. This is so cool. And so as I'm sort of feeling somewhat depressed about losing my sponsors and what am I going to do next year? How am I going to make my living? Because coaching wasn't quite fully cutting it at that point. Um, you know, I, I got together with, with a friend of mine who, who said, uh, you know, maybe you can, turn this into an opportunity. Maybe you guys can make a specific ski designed for this new stuff that you're doing. And so without any other good options, I was like, well, we might as well give it a try.
1: That's a pretty so, entrepreneurial decision to make to go, okay, there's a adverse situation. I'm going to lean into it rather than I'll oh, just see what happens or I'll default to the easiest option. Like, what were the, Who were the people around you that guided you towards that decision what were the processes going through your mind at that time
0: well steve faring was the main guy so he was the coach of the japanese mogul team at the time and he had been my coach when i was on the canadian team so um you know he was like also he had been working with with solomon in japan and he knew that they were sort of hungry for something to try and revive the ski industry over there and he was like you know you got what you guys are doing is really cool. The, there's got to be a business model like there's got to be some way that you can make this work and I was like oh yeah we need it we need a ski like mogul skis do not work well for what we're trying to do and so I drew up a 20 page proposal of you know sort of the merits of of what I thought this could be And we also made a an eight minute video over the next you know two or three months and then Steve took that video and he shopped it around to the ski countries ski companies of the world the, the main ones there were there were nine you know key brands at that point that were sort of dominating the scene and he met with them all and and um you know no surprise to anyone who's tried to get something like this off the ground the door slammed in his face you know repeatedly i think all but two companies just sort of laughed him out of the building and, uh, and, and with those two companies, one was Rosignal and the other was Solomon. Uh, Rosignal said, well, we don't really think your ski idea is going to work, but we think you guys are really cool skiers. So we'll sponsor you, <laughs> which wasn't really the point of the whole thing. And then Solomon said, yeah, you know, we're interested, but we're not sure. And then right when, you know, I felt like, okay, well, maybe this is going to work out. Everything stopped. The phones went quiet, uh, the, you know, fall was in the air, the snow was starting to, to arrive on the peaks. And, and I knew that if I didn't have a deal in place at the start of the winter, that it was going to be a, a tough winter and I might have to go back into the sort of the real job world and get a second job to support my coaching and all that sort of stuff. And so right when I was, you know, literally the week I was ready to sort of give up and start looking for jobs, I got a call from a guy named Guy Bertillon at Solomon in Canada. And he said, Hey, I just want to let you know that we haven't abandoned this idea. This is still something that we're we're talking about. And there's a few of us in the company that really believe in in your pitch. And and don't give up. Just don't give up. And so that was obviously a boost. Um, I, I don't think I, it filled me entirely with confidence, but at least it sort of kept me going for a couple more weeks. And it was a couple of weeks later that that he came back to me and said, We're gonna do a deal with you guys. We we we've got enough people that believe in this. We wanna do a deal. So eventually the you know, some of the, the guys from Solomon in France uh reached out and said, um, hey, um, can we get those uh, specs on the skis that you designed? And I said, well, you'll get the specs when we get a contract. (laughs) So, um, and the funny thing is they said, Oh, we think we know what you want anyway. So they went and built a prototype without really getting any information from us. And it was an absolute disaster. Like it wasn't even close. So that obviously sped up the, the, uh, the contract, um, signing and, and Mm -hmm. we had a contract just a few weeks later and got to work. And then, you know, literally it was only, it was like not even two months later that we had the first really good prototype for that ski. And, and that ski not only changed my life, but, but sort of, um, changed skiing in a certain way.
1: One of the things about ski towns and people live in ski towns and skiers and people who spend time in the mountains and adventuring generally is they don't spend much time typically in the corporate world doing like negotiating contracts and thinking long term, like, how did you get your head around that negotiation?
0: I mean, I guess I've always felt a little bit entrepreneurial, at least. Um, I certainly, I I come from pretty modest uh, background. You know, my parents were both working class folks that that you know we we didn't have fancy vacations and and things like that we kind of scratched for everything that we had and and um and that forced me to to you know I'm the kind of guy who arrived in in Whistler to ski for season and and had four jobs to make it work mm. like and I wasn't afraid of that and and because of that I I you know if I had something that you know a challenge ahead I, I would dig in and I would look into it and also at the time what helped too was I was I was a coach for the Canadian freestyle team at that point. So, you know, in that coaching world, you deal with a lot of mm. I don't want to say corporate folks, but but folks, you know, it's a bureaucracy, right? And so you go to these national meetings and you're sitting in boardrooms and you're having to to use that sort of business speak and and I you know, I'd been coaching for I was into my I guess my third year at that point. And so I I kind of knew the business speak well enough, I'll say, to to survive in that world. And, and, you know, you, you kind of fake it till you make it too, right? Like there's, there's a little bit of that uh, <laughs> talking above your pay grade sort of to, oh, to convince people. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think just having that confidence to put yourself out there and be, and be willing to fail. I think that's, that's also um, something that's sort of in me um, that I, that I, I don't like to fail, but I'm willing to fail. So okay. I think that that can carry you a little ways.
1: So I'm pretty interested by failure and willingness to fail. Like a, I'm pretty much sold on the idea that the more willing you are to fail, the quicker you grow. So what have you learned about failure? And what have been your most successful failures in your years?
0: I've, I've learned that failure is a part of the process. And that you can't have hits every time. And if you get a few good hits in your lifetime or your career, like you're, you're doing really well. And I, and I think, you know, one thing I learned certainly through my ski career, if I back it up all the way back to when I was a mogul skier, I wasn't overly successful. I never won a big event. Um, I, I, I don't even think I hit the podium in a world cup. Um, so there was a lot of disappointment in that. And, and I was, you know, I was really trying and and that led to frustration when the results didn't come. And, and ultimately I ended up probably finishing my mogul career prematurely because of that frustration. Like I just got to the point where it stopped being fun. And, and I recognized in myself that, that I need to enjoy this otherwise i will move on and find something else that led me to coaching and what i learned from coaching was that my failure as a high end mogul skier actually made me a much better coach because when the, the the athletes that i was working with were struggling i could relate i i i could i had been in their shoes as they they hit that sort of roadblock that they were having trouble overcoming you know, I look at like a, a a skier like um I I don't know, like uh like maybe Johnny Mosley, for example. Johnny was Johnny came out of my generation. Most mm-hmm. people know who Johnny Mosley is if they're a skier. Um, Johnny was a natural. Johnny would just like was just magic, right? Like he would always find a way to do it. And and he made it look easy. And I think for those people that win all the time they're not necessarily conscious of what it might take to take someone who doesn't win all the time and teach them how to win all the time. And that's where I felt like my strength as a coach came from was was going through those struggles and that failure so that I could like then sort of break that down and unpack it all and, and be like, okay, well, this is where I went wrong and this is how I eventually made it right. And the funny thing was, once I sort of broke out of that negative cycle too that I had as, as a competitive skier, and and stepped back and stepped out of myself because I think so much, you know, so many people, no matter what they're doing, they get so pulled in to the minutia of what they're doing that they lose that broader perspective. And when I was able to sort of step out of of the day to day grind of trying to get down that ski course and and, look, and 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 back out of it all of a sudden my perspective changed i realized that the things that had been stressing me and that i was worrying about were actually silly things that i should not have been focused on and and from that broader perspective i gained a ton of confidence and then ended up skiing better than than i probably ever have in my coaching years like i felt you know people are like you should go back on the tour man <laughs> so it's uh it's it's you know, you learn you learn by making mistakes. I think you learn a lot more by, by failing and making mistakes than you do by being successful.
1: Absolutely. If you extrapolate that process out and you take that not just from skiing, but to entrepreneurialism or entrepreneurship, if you um translate that out to running a media company, how do you teach someone who's not that kind of natural born winner? Or what do you see as the kind of the major learning curves that you have to repeat time and time again to turn someone who's kind of who struggles a bit more to become successful in their pursuit?
0: Ooh, I mean, it's, there's, there's no silver bullet that I've found. There's no quick fix. I, I think to a certain degree, I mean, I think you have to start by being honest with yourself, first of all, and and when i look at you know certainly from from trying to be a filmmaker um and look at my own work there there is a certain level of honesty there that where you have to sort of recognize that you know this is where we're at right now how do we get to that next level how can we sort of take this from being a mid-range production and making it an excellent production and for me it's 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 from being open to always learning, to always, you know, dissecting, you know, successful films, for example, for me. So as a filmmaker, I'm, you know, I've, I've taken some of my favorite films and broken them down into, you know, like almost like a, if it's a Lego construction, I've broken it down to the brick and what made, you know, this scene stand out, what made this scene so strong, what what was the structure? What, what were the characters doing? What, and, and I really try, I find that, that personally, if I can, if I can take something that that's successful or that I really like and break it down, then I can figure out, um, you know, I can go, well, it, it takes 10 bricks to build that segment. I had six of them, right. But I can see that there were four here that I didn't quite get right. And, and for me, it's, it's looking always always trying to learn and 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 um you know maybe i'm maybe i'm just i'm a bit of a nerd that way and maybe not everyone thinks that way but for me i you know i love youtube actually you know th- there are so many people that that love to analyze virtually anything in this world on youtube and and there's a lot of good takes there and i i I, I soak that stuff up. I I probably watch one or two things a day that, that are either just anything that I'm interested in. Um, but, but filmmaking in particular, you know, like the, 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 the building blocks of storytelling, the, the, the structural elements that, that, you know, make someone stay
1: interested. what what are the key components in storytelling that you just can't do without?
0: Well, I, I think structure is, is the first, um, the first one, it's the basic. And, and that's where I start before I start putting a film together is, you know, a a film is traditionally has a three act structure. Um, things tend to happen in sequences or, or in patterns at least, and we can try and invent that and you can make a crazy art film and something that's super fresh or whatever, but humans are are sort of programmed to, to to want structure. Certainly in their storytelling. Like if you look at movies and you break them down, there are not that many structures that that almost every film follows. And so you sort of have to to build that out. You build a storyboard with your key elements of your story that follows that structure. And then of course everything gets refined and and. Um, you you break it down and get much more specific but but structure is just so so key the the human brain we we look for patterns it's why we we have phrases that everybody knows um everybody you know it's it's that familiarity that that there's three or four words that get strung together but everybody knows what that means even if it's more of a metaphor or whatever like there's just these these things the other thing is that that humans you know, when they're when they're paying attention to a story, certainly in a film they're, they they don't want it just openly handed to them in the most obvious way that there needs to be a little bit of that um, of mystery of of trying to figure out what's going to happen next. And and. Um, so you have to be careful that you're not giving away too much too soon and these sorts of things. You want to, um, as, as I like to say, we're planting seeds along the way. Seeds that, you know, Mm -hmm. something, you know, I'm working on a, a documentary film right now and, and I, I put a scene in that, that happens, um, at around the 30 minute mark of the film that I know it's interesting in what's being said, there's interesting on its own, but it's actually planting a seed that, that the, the sprout of the tree will be seen at around the, the one hour and 10 minute mark of the film. Nice. So it's, it's these, you know, it's, it's figuring this stuff out and, and um, it's, it's not a big secret, you know, it's not, it's not like you, you, as a filmmaker, you, you know, there are some people that I think just have a special, special skill at it, but if you break it down, into its elements, um, of structure, you, you will likely make a pretty good film.
1: I love that idea of the seeds sprouting later on, because it's almost like, um, you know how comedians have callbacks and they'll like say a joke a third of the way through. And then the, another punchline comes like almost by the end, like that kind of, um, satisfaction. It's almost like, I'm guessing the audience wants to be surprised and there's a tension that gets kind of, um, excited than relieved
0: yeah and, and i mean as a as a viewer uh, i i you know when i watch films there's often questions coming up into my mind as, as we watch the film and there is this like sweet little dopamine rush uh that comes when that question gets answered that thing that was really in the back of your head there or the thing that you i think it's going to go this way and and it can be a thrill to both figure it out, but it also can, can be a thrill when it flips upside down and you go, whoa, I didn't see that coming, you know. So mm-hmm. um I I think in any form of storytelling, if we can keep that those little thrills coming along the way, you'll keep your audience engaged and and um and that's that's part of the fun of it. That's that's part of of trying to figure it out and, and make it good.
1: And I suppose part of those thrills, if we if we kind of use that as a parallel for how we move through our lives is encountering those failures because in a film you see the failures and you go, oh that especially fiction like okay, that's establishing that character for their trials to make them into the best version of themselves, but in our lives, it's quite easy to get like bogged down in that and kind of go just like when you like the stories you were talking about earlier like you need that encouragement to go through that, and the willingness to lean into it. What are those failures along the way or struggles along the way that you've been kind of that were the most fruitful that you leant against for a long, long time, and then eventually it had the the resolution that you were looking for.
0: Hmm. I I mean I tend to. I I tend to be a person that hangs on to things for a long time. And if you look back at my career, I've I, you know, I've had I've had three sponsors in my life that were 20 plus years. I mean, it's it's it, if if things are going well, I tend to, to I'm I'm loyal. I mean, I and I don't I don't view that necessarily as a fault, but I also Will, will sometimes hang on to something a little bit longer than maybe I should. And, um, you know, right now with my company, we're going through a pretty big moment of change, like the biggest change probably in 16 years. And it's uncomfortable. Change is uncomfortable. Failure is uncomfortable. But I keep reminding myself through the experiences that I've had in my life that, that, that change is good change change sparks things in your mind failure you know gives you that sort of motivation you feel down i mean i'm i'm not trying to say that i oh i failed and i feel good about it i feel really really crappy uh when i've when i've you know something hasn't worked out whether it's you know um you know, my ski career that, you know, I, I, had a crappy season or, or whatever, or a film that I was really excited about, just did not connect with audiences. But once I get through that sort of depression phase, um, I, i I get a boost where I'm like, okay, well let's, let's learn from this and let's, let's try to do that. Uh, you know, right now with my company, switchback entertainment we've we've been successfully running for um 16 years where where you know i've had a staff of of people and we've made a lot of successful films a lot of award-winning films and and things felt like you know they were just going to continue on forever and then um you know through covid and 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 such we we saw you know, the whole world sort of stopped for a little while and and it was the same for us. And we expected to sort of rise out of that in a way that, uh, would, you know, we'd be right back to right back to normal. And that hasn't happened. Um, you know, for a bunch of different reasons, uh, there's been a downturn in the industry. Um, there's been some challenges on our side with, with clients and, and the way things have been going and, and, we're finding ourselves at a point where I actually just, I, I had to lay my staff off. And, uh, and I'm, I'm working solo for the first time in 16 years. So um, that's, a, that's a tough spot to be in uh, mentally, you know, after after having a, a company that did really well for a long time. But at the same time, it's, it's also a place where I feel like there's opportunity and excitement again. And it's a it's an opportunity to pivot. And and one of the things that that comes from failure is 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 a reflection back at yourself where you go, okay, well, to a certain degree, we're starting from scratch again. What, what, how do you want to do this now? Because there is opportunity to kind of clean the slate and 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 pivot into a slightly different direction. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do right now.
1: Yeah, that's that's really tough, and I can. Absolute sympathize with that i uh i ran a, a performance coaching for cross athletes business for a, a long time and it was always like did pretty well for seasons you could say and then it just got to the stagnation point where the, the business model that i was running and the um and the product it just didn't work anymore and i had to go through the same process of like laying off staff and saying sorry you you haven't got this role and also getting rid of all our clients and that's such a a threatening and uncomfortable, and there's, I think there's an element of like humiliation or kind of fi- the failure aspect of where I was Like, oh man, I just like speak for me personally. Anyway, it was like a really fuck this up, and like and like and I feel bad about that. Like, that's a really tough thing to try and navigate.
0: Yeah, for sure, and it, and especially you know, I'm not I'm not young anymore, and I've had. I've had a lot of wins in my life and and i think you know for that reason people sometimes hold you on a bit of a pedestal and they're like oh the, the, this guy's so solid and not you know nothing's ever gonna break down in in that system and you know and 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 also you look back and you you beat yourself up a little bit i think that's natural too it's like well where where did i fail like how did i how did that go wrong why are we in this situation how And you can really beat yourself up. And I think it's, it is good to, to reflect a little bit back and, and see, okay, like what were there, were there certain things that were done um, that I could do better? Like, what can I learn from this? What can I take away from this? But I, I also think that you don't want to dwell in that place for very long. I think you have to, you have to, you know, break it down, feel really crappy for a while. and then. Go okay. Well, where do we go from here? And you know, the, do I want to go through this again? What I've been through over the last six months with this? No, I don't. But at the at a certain point, though, I am I am excited by the idea of okay, this is a chance to to reinvent and and somewhat start from the bottom again. And and one thing that I have learned as well, and 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 actually a little bit of this is coming through one of the characters in a, in a in a film that I've been working on is that um, it is the, the most fun that you can have. The most exciting time is when you are breaking out from the bottom, when you are finding your way and you feel like the world's against you. And all of a sudden, like something falls into place. That's, that's the sweet spot. That's the excitement zone. When you're, when you're, you know, on top of your game, your business, your sport, whatever you're doing, it's a precarious position. You're trying to hang on. And, and, um, there's, there's really something special about clawing up from the bottom and being, yeah. being the one that's, that's rising fast. And, and I, to a certain degree, I, I feel that right now because I'm, I'm pivoting a little bit with, with my professional work. Um, but that's exciting. That's there's new opportunities, there's there's new things that are happening in my life this year. My winter as I'm planning it ahead is actually looking very different from what it's looked like for the last 16 years. And there is that's exciting for me. That's exciting.
1: That moment when things just before you succeed I think that's the the moment that's most exciting when you when you actually get the reward whatever that is for you it's like that's great but it vanishes quickly but that feeling of like shit this is working this is actually Mm -hmm. happening now like that in business whether it's in performance whether it's like even that that feeling just before the run of a life when you're like this is gonna be it's gonna be something special you're like that's the kind of it has a different feeling to it, rather than like I've done that. It's um, different sensation.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I have a I have a couple of friends that that do startups. You know, they're in tech and and um, and they just do startups. And I never really understood it. I'm like, well, why you built this company? It seems to be reasonably successful. Why don't you follow through? Because that's you know that's how I've always operated. i all. I'll build up a part of my career or whatever. And then we get it off the ground and it becomes successful. And then we, and then we ride it and I'm looking at my, my friends and they're They build a startup and then they they're there for a year and then, and then they're out. And I'm like, well, well what happened? Ah, I wanted something different. And these guys are, are, are addicted to sort of that, that feeling of starting at the ground. And like you said, like coming through that sweet spot, where that where all the excitement is and then once it's up and established that thrill is kind of gone and and so these guys are resetting and constantly trying to live in that sweet spot of of building something from the ground
1: yeah well it's a completely different skill set and it's a completely different temperament for success in that like if you think about the kind of when you've got a successful business and maintaining and increasing that one percent every year that's a very different skill set to zero to one as opposed or zero to ninety nine as opposed to ninety nine to hundred. There's a very different kind of feeling there. Yeah. Sure. Cool. You talked then about your winter coming up. And one thing I'm interested by with I work with who I term adventurepreneurs. Okay. So entrepreneurs who want to do cool shit with their time. And the struggle with that is balance and making sure you do that cool shit because businesses can become all consuming. And they can become, especially when you're going through difficult times, like it's all you think about. so how do you structure your days, your weeks, your years to facilitate that adventure, and that probably the reason you got into it to begin with
0: yeah, so that that actually was done very consciously from the beginning uh, when i when I built my production company. I, I took a look and I said, okay, well, what do I want this to be? I, and I, and right away, I said, more than anything, I want to maintain my adventurous lifestyle. This is the primary reason that I'm doing this. I'm not, I, I don't care about being rich, but I do care about doing the things that I love, which is to be, you know, it, in the early days, it was to be skiing all over the world and and going to interesting places. Nowadays, it's it's more to just be out in the world and and experiencing new things and, and, you know, and also having the time in my life to, to get outside and, and move my body and, and stay in shape and, and, you know, go for a bike ride every second day with my best friend for three hours in the middle of the afternoon. Those are, our high priorities in my life. And so in, in setting up the company, I, I made it clear, uh, to myself but also to to the people working for me that we are a lifestyle company and when you come to work for switchback entertainment that means that there are going to be times when you're working for 12 days in a row from the moment you wake up until the moment you go to bed but there is also going to be times where you can take a week uh that the week after that and you can go and do whatever you want or you know we we the office here. We're in a ski town. I we're two minutes from the ski lifts here at the bottom of Whistler Mountain, and if it's a powder day, you know when when it snows twenty centimeters or more on the mountain, unless we are pressing for a deadline and there's something that absolutely has to be delivered, the show stops and we all go skiing for half a day, and and so th- those are have always been sort of the the ethos that we've operated under is that we want to you know we want to make sure that we're. Staying employed, and that we're we're getting the work done for our clients, and so we're doing a good job. But we want to do work that feeds our souls, and and everyone who's ever worked here has has bought into that. Has been, you know, we're flying off to Chamonix, France next week, and then we're going to be in Japan next month, and and that's always sort of been the way we've the way we've operated, and and the work that we've also pursued is like we could do this corporate commercial job and make twice as much money, but we'd way rather go to Greenland for three months or for three weeks and, uh, and, and, you know, drill ice cores on, on the Greenland ice sheet. So we've always prioritized, um, that sort of adventure element and and the outdoors and and doing what we love. Now, when I look back, you know, there's a lot of reflection that happens, you know, when things turn sideways a little bit, which they have over this past year. And I go, okay, well, for sure, had I been more focused on growth and the bottom line and all these things, we probably wouldn't be in the business position we're in right now. But at the same time that was a conscious decision. Uh I don't want to be I don't want to have 15 employees and, you know, you know, to being trying to increase by 4% a year and and you know, out grinding for for corporate clients and and making commercials for for laundry detergent. Um this isn't what we want to do. So, uh everything all the decisions that I make from a business front are with the lifestyle element. In front of mine, it's like okay. I, I, for sure, I want to be successful as a business person, but my priority is to to be able to live the life I want to live along the way, and not just be grinding away at work all the time and then hoping for that two weeks of fun adventure each year. I want to I want the adventure to be at the forefront.
1: Just a quick favor to ask: if you love the show and you think it may help someone else in the world, then head to wherever you listen to the Freedom Project and leave a five star review. And maybe even share it with some friends it really does help me and it helps the show too i can continue to get fantastic guests on the show it reaches more people and it makes me feel great too so i would be enormously grateful if you could leave a five-star review and share any episodes of the podcast that you love yeah you have to add that kind of um, positive constraint because otherwise it your work fills the available space and if there's no hard deadline of this is when i go away this is when the trip's booked this is when the skiing session happens there's no like there's no reason to stop and therefore it just expands to fill that you mentioned right at the beginning there that you've you started with that end goal in mind of this is what i'm trying to consciously create there's probably an element of this is the lifestyle i'm trying to design for myself and the business that i'm trying to design have there been any rules that you've established along the way um that have helped you kind of maintain that or have there been any kind of like early warning signs of i can see i'm like straying either side of that balance
0: yeah there's there's a sort of a rule that i put in place quite early on um because uh, like you said i I, you you nailed it when you said you just filled the time. You know, if you don't have those constraints, you will, I'm one of those people that will fill the time. I could easily get sucked into my office and spend 10 hours a day, even doing almost nothing. Um, So for me, I I try to to periodically uh, a few times a year, but certainly at the end of our fiscal every year. I kind of step back. I learned that from my ski days, as I said earlier, I, I, I I like to step out. You get so locked into the day to day. That's that. It's nice to step out and sort of, you know, look from, from 10,000 meters back at, at your business and your operation and your life and all these things. And for a long time, I tried to, I looked at all the things I did in my life. Um, You know, whether I'm, you know, if I go back 15 years, you know, I was a professional skier. I was skiing in ski films. I was, um, I was public speaking. I was working in television. I was writing articles for, for magazines. I was, um, coaching courses. I, I was doing, I I had probably 10 different hats that I wore through the year and each year, uh, for, for quite a while, I would, sort of take a look in into all those baskets and be like okay which of these do i like the least and and i would i would eliminate that basket and the one that that <laughs> the one that changed my life the most actually was um was was uh stopping writing so i i love reading a good story i i love reading articles all this kind of thing i and i can put something out that is readable, that is decent, that's been, you know, I've been published many, many, many times, but the amount of time and struggle and effort that it takes me to get written word down on a page in a way that that's acceptable for me or or is good enough to be published takes an awful lot of time and, and, and is, is a grind for me. Like it's just, it, the words just don't flow onto the page. It's like, I'm ripping them out of the back of my brain trying to put them down in a cohesive order. Um, and, and so I looked at at sort of the benefits that I was getting from that. And then the struggle that I was having to, to do, to, to sort of put those together. And I said, this, this doesn't match. And, and I just, you know, when the magazines came calling, I said, sorry, I'm, I'm out. (laughs) Like I
1: just, it's
0: just one of those things. And and sometimes Did that feel those feel unstable. Have...
1: What's that? Did that feel like unstable and like a risk at the time?
0: Yes. It all feels like risk. And and part of the reasons that I do so many different things in my life is that I always feel like I'm on the edge of it all ending. Of of you know, the phone will stop ringing. No one's going to ask me to do this stuff anymore. And I need to, you know, if there's an opportunity that comes, I I need to say yes, I need to say yes. And so I spent, you know, I I spent probably the first half of my career saying yes to everything. And uh, now I've spent the second half of my career trying to learn to say no. And I'm I'm not going to say I'm great at saying no, but I'm better than I used to be. And I think saying no, you know, if I've learned one thing, if I could go back, you know, people say, well, if you could go back, would you change anything? The only thing I've come up with that I would change is I would learn, I would have tried to learn to say no more often earlier in my life. I think, I think you don't have to take every opportunity. And I think if you do, you can dilute yourself to the point where maybe some of the things that you do best or that, that, that are the most rewarding in your life, don't get the time and effort that they need because you're trying to do too much.
1: Hmm. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Right. What's the best no that you've ever given the best, what the best? No.
0: Oh, the best. No. Um, There isn't one that stands out, but I would say that like, I, I think, I think, giving up my writing career was just flat out saying no, because at at the time I was writing for the publications that I grew up on. I was writing for powder magazine and I was writing for, um, you know, free skier and ski and, and, uh, um, oh, there were a bunch and, and especially powder magazine was, was my Bible when I was a kid. Like I, I, would you know go to the mailbox every day after school waiting for that thing to be there that was like that was my connection to to the greater ski world I mean this is before the internet and all these things where everything's at our fingertips now but back then the the anticipation for that type of stuff was was it was strong and uh and and I would pour through that magazine I'd read every word I had the I'd cut the pictures out and I'd put them on my wall and and that was a big deal so when I had the opportunity to not only appear in the pages as a skier but then to have my words there um you know that was a thrill for sure for sure but I I I had to you know eventually say no when they called I I said no and that's a tough thing to do it's like you know saying no to your hero kind of um but looking back now, I realize that that just wasn't the best use of my time. And it, 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 it caused a lot more frustration than it should have. And, and, and being honest with yourself, I think sometimes, and not sort of beating a dead horse is, is, is sometimes what you have to do.
1: It's so difficult to tear down an identity and habits that have like, we've worked so hard for, I was speaking to someone on the podcast recently who is, um, former Royal Marines Commando. So decent level of military in the UK. And he was talking about that transition outside, out of the military. And it was very difficult for him because he deployed to Afghanistan, PTSD, but like the, the reintroduction of, um, a different identity and getting rid of the old one. He eventually went down kind of filmmaking route and um and has moved into that area and um you might have come across him in your work as well and um, different guy burnt marius rostad he's um mm-hmm. yeah and going through that progression of okay i have had my foot amputated how do i adapt my identity to a new set of challenges and how does that like how does how painful is the not only the, the physical aspect of that obviously but how painful is the the ego death that happens of like, this is who I think I am. And I'm having to drop that and then move forward to the, with a new direction.
0: I mean, anyone who tells you that it's, it's not hard is, is probably lying or is an (laughs) an extraordinarily different kind of person. I mean, there is, you have to, there is pain to it. It is. And I mean, as an, as an athlete, you all have to go through that you can't be a professional athlete forever not certainly not at the the highest levels and you know for me uh, when i was you know in the heart of my career this there was a ceiling there was a hard ceiling as as being a professional free skier and it was 35 years old nobody made a career past 35 and there I was, I was 33, I was starting to think about it, like, Oh, I'm only two years away from the ceiling. What, you know, what am I going to do? I love this. I I love everything about this. I want to keep doing this. But that's where, you know, the production company came from. And I, I, I sort of like, once again, like removed myself back out of my life and went, okay, well, what, what actually beyond the physical performance of, you know, being at the front edge of your sport, what do I actually enjoy about this? And I I said to myself, I love the adventure. I love the travel. I love the creative aspects of trying to put together, you know, a film segment for a ski movie. I love, you know, I was working in television at the time for ESPN um, and the X games. And I, and I love trying to take a sport like slope style skiing and translate that to the viewers at home who don't understand at all what they're seeing they don't just want to hear what the names of the tricks are they want to they want a reason to care about the person they're seeing on screen and so you know props to ESPN because you know they sent us to commentator school where we learned how to tell stories where we learned to talk about instead of well this guy's got this cool trick we would talk about the fact that 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 the person's father has cancer and is in the hospital right now. And, and the kid's been focused on that most of the time whenever he's not skiing and, and like, and to bring those personal stories out. And I realized I really loved that process of trying to translate something that's very niche to a mainstream audience. And so when I added all those things up, I went, well, uh, a natural place for me to move right now is toward, uh, production and and film and video and and storytelling and 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 so that happened fairly naturally because of of my interests and then um that and th- and that also gave me something new to focus on so instead of you know as i hit 34 35 years old instead of you know freaking out and being like well, what am i going to do next i kind of got in front of that just a little bit and so that that even though I still wanted to be that pro skier that was out there doing everything, I also had a foot over in in this uh, bin over here, and and was like, well, I, I can I can also put some energy here, and that and that helped definitely make that an easier transition. And the one thing that I never in a million years saw coming was that I would be able to <laughs> continue my pro ski career for potentially another 20 plus years i mean i'm still technically a pro skier even though i'm spending much more time in on on the film production side these days i i still do pro skier things and and get out there all the time and and uh and have sponsors so
1: well, I'd say that's because you had the courage to pursue authenticity as well. You went, "This is a direction that I'm willing to go," and if you just tried to hold on to that rigid concept of "this is who I am," that would have probably become too rigid. And you wouldn't have been able to fill it. But now you've got your niche that only really is so unique to you; no one else could mimic that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's like I said. If you when I when I set up you know, my production company, it was with it being a lifestyle company in mind, you know, I, 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 I obviously need to make a living just like everybody else does. But if I can make a living doing the things that I like to do, then I don't need to be wealthy. I don't need to have all these things and all this money. Because, w- you know, the way I'm making my living is, is li- me living exactly how I want to live. And, th- and that's, you know for the most part that has worked out and 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 has kept me motivated the other thing that that's interesting um and and i'm sure military folks and 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 all athletes can relate to there is a rush that comes from being a professional athlete from from being at the the pinnacle of your sport where you're you're pushing your body you're pushing the limits of what's possible and, you know, in my case, it was doing big tricks in in, in backcountry, big mountain terrain and and doing things that, that few people were doing. And when you pull something off that feels somewhat death defying, there's a rush that comes from that, that is the best feeling in the world. You know, you'd land a flip off a big cliff or something like that and you land on your feet and you keep going out the bottom at 60 miles an hour. And it's just like, wow, this is... This is the best feeling ever. And I remember as I was making that transition, I was so afraid that that would be gone forever from my life. That I would never get that thrill again. And 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 I and it's terrifying. And I think it's one of the 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 things that athletes have trouble with is is the thrill of of victory and 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 the thrill of optimal performance and flow state and all these sorts of things and i truly believed for a short time that, that that was over that i would not get those feelings in my life anymore and one thing i've discovered and i try to pass this on as much as possible to 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 younger athletes that are transitioning out of their out of their athletic careers is that you can find that thrill in other ways i i never thought it was possible but but through filmmaking through um through putting you know a year of your life into a project that that involves the same kind of work that you had to put into your athletics and then finally presenting that project to the world, there is a, I mean, it's terrifying. It is, there's a, the, the nerves I would get to, to you know, pre- premiering a film at a film festival in front of an audience of 600 or 1,000 people it's like, it's just like that start gate feeling again. And, um, and then, you know, when you hear the laughs at the right point, and and the the applause at the end, and people come up and say that was amazing, whatever. I mean, it's amazing how similar that thrill is that feeling of of being vulnerable, and and all the uncertainty, and then and then the payoff. I was like, wow, Feels like I just did a ski event and and won. This is this is amazing. And I mean, the beauty of it at the same. I mean, it's a, it's great when you win, but the beauty of it is 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 sometimes you go into that theater and the audience is flat and they didn't get it, and you walk out and you just feel awful for weeks. And um, but it's that uncertainty that creates the thrill. If it was a if it was a guarantee, there wouldn't be the thrill. And so. Um, this is something that I've I've been I've been trying to share with with people that have either had career ending injuries or or are just at the point where where they're making that transition and they're scared. And I'm like, it's a, it's OK. You can find that thrill in other places. And, and um, I, I think it's good for people to know that.
1: Well, you said it exactly there, that feeling of vulnerability, of exposure, whether that is physical vulnerability or the emotional vulnerability that comes from displaying your art publicly and saying that this is what I believe is beautiful and then putting that on display in front of other people, that is such a risk. It's almost like when someone judges your music taste and like they go, oh, don't like that. And then you're like, but that's what I find beautiful. That's me. That's who I really am. And uh, and that's also the the best that I can produce. That's a tough thing to put out into the world
0: yeah a hundred percent and uh, you know it's i think it's so tough to put yourself out there it's so tough to to be in a position where you could fail where you could be embarrassed or humiliated or um mm-hmm. you know have to walk back with your tail between your legs but at the same time uh, that's life you know that's the one thing I've learned from filmmaking is that we're, we're all flawed. There's nobody who's just this perfect character that gets it right every time. And, 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 and everything is amazing. Um, flaws are what make humans interesting. Flaws are what make, makes life interesting for that matter. Um, you know, there's a character in a film that I'm, that I'm working on behind the scenes. Um, uh, and he says, "If if every story was just love, 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 it would be the most boring story in the world. You you can't have the ups unless you have the downs, and and that's that's so true.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly what you've been speaking around this whole time. Like the ups and the downs, they are they the yin and the yang. They're the two forces that kind of um, that balance each other out. Are there when you look back at?" the movies that you've created are there risks that you've taken that have paid off like or specific risks that you've taken that you've paid off
0: for sure I I would say I mean I've, I've I've been very fortunate because I've made a lot of of short films over the years and with you know with with quite a lot of success but also some failure mixed in um it, something that's always always tough to to manage um i i think in any any career or profession or 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 pursuit is that the first film that i really put you know my heart and soul into and put that extra effort into to to actually make a a film rather than a a piece of branded content or or whatever um was, was one called the freedom chair that I did back in 2011 with Josh Duick. Josh is a, a Paralympic athlete. He was paralyzed from the waist down after a ski accident and then sort of rose again as a sit skier. And, you know, he, he didn't just rise and get back out on snow, but he thrived and he's a Paralympic multi Paralympic medalist. Um, and, and also was the first person to do a backflip in a sit ski. And, not only that, but he's an extraordinary human being and and just an incredible character. And and working with Josh, um, you know, I, I did the initial interview with him and he, he just delivered like he was just, you know, right there. What you dream of as as a subject and putting the film together. It was tough for sure. It was more effort than I'd put into anything to that point. But at the same time, it kind of came together well. We premiered it the BAM film festival. It won, uh, it, it went on to, to be, uh, still to this day, the the most successful film I've ever made. I've won something like 15 awards at film festivals all over the world. And Josh was, was cruising around the world and, and bouncing off of that with another follow-up project we did. He was on every news channel in the world. He was on the Ellen DeGeneres sh- show and in, in the U S and, and like, it it kind of took off and, and became so much more than I ever thought it could be. But one of the things that I learned that was so challenging in retrospect is that having your first one be a really big success makes, <laughs> makes the time after that tougher because, um, you know, I, I thought in my mind, I was like, well, th- this really isn't, that hard. I guess I have a knack for this. I must be pretty good at it. And then I realized with subsequent films that, that actually it was really Josh and his character that brought that thing to life and that you, not everyone is this amazing character that people want to get behind and, and cheer for in the theater. And so that's, that's been really interesting because when when you have that success out of the gate, um, and and you're always trying to strive to match that, that that can be challenging. And and certainly, yes, we've had some hits over the years, some some films that have done very very well and won a lot of awards. But we've also had films that roll out that we're very excited about that don't make a great connection with an audience at all. And that you know that that's something that you can beat yourself up on. And and you know, as an analytical person. I I do a forensic on everything, and I'm like, okay, well, why didn't this work? Why did we not connect? And when you have a, a few misses in a row, say, you really start to to look at yourself and go, okay, well, and you start to beat yourself up. I think, you know, we like to be our own harshest critics. I think that's that a lot of success can come from that. But I think there is a a, a line. That you have to sort of draw in the sand because we, you know, and, and I'll look at my company over the last few years, we tended to beat ourselves up maybe a little bit too much when we didn't have a successful um, film that that audiences didn't fully connect with that we liked. and And we would... Mm-hmm we would then analyze and overanalyze and and say, wow, you know, we, we let this sentence run on too long. We got into the minutiae of it. And and I I don't think that's a healthy place to be. And, and from that, from the frustration that, that comes from that and maybe business not going as well as you expect, I sort of had to step back about a year ago, actually, as I, as I started onto a new, you know, digging in really deep on a new film project. And I, I, listen to a podcast where where actually the guests said you have to be okay with the process and and that really stuck with me um because what what i was doing at the time was i was really focusing on the result i was really focusing on you know let's beat ourselves up all along the way with this in the hopes that that the people in the theater will love what we're putting out and, and when I reflected back on, on a film I did um, a year ago, I I realized that I, I didn't enjoy the process in the way that I felt that I should, if, if, if I want to do this for my living and I want to, to make this a lifestyle company and something that feeds my soul every day, then I need to enjoy what I'm doing along the way. And so I made a shift about a year ago, uh, to, to stop focusing on the result and focus more on the process. And it has absolutely transformed the feeling I have day to day when I'm working.
1: How do you tactically like do that? Like, what are you looking at? Like how are you reminding yourself to do that?
0: I started going a little bit more with my gut I mean, yes, I focus, as I said earlier, I focus on structure. I focus on making sure that, that, that the things that need to happen, the boxes that need to be checked are checked. But then I, I focus on following a feeling a little bit more. And I, because when I went back to the, the beginning of my film career, I didn't have any of the expertise. I went with the feeling and, and in a way I think, the films I made might've been less perfect from a technical point of view, but I think they had the feeling that maybe has been missing in more recent years. And so I'm trying to get that back and I'm trying to enjoy. Sometimes I put in a a sequence of shots or, or, or something into, into a film I'm working on now that just feels good. That doesn't have a purpose of, of absolutely driving the story forward in, in some particular way um and the other thing that i that i stopped doing was getting constant feedback along the way now i'm the feedback is coming in in it's more spread out so i'll work a month for example without getting any feedback at all and then i'll go and i'll get a bunch of feedback and i'll distill that and i'll break it down and go okay Yep, this could be better. We, we need to make that clear, whatever. But then I'll go back in and spend another month, um, you know, just, just playing around and enjoying the process. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I don't know what the results of this are going to be. I'm working on a big film right now. I don't don't know if this is going to pay off for audiences down the road. But I know for myself, for the enjoyment I have, of sitting down and working on my craft, it is much more fulfilling than it was before I started doing this and you know what at this point that's good enough
1: nice well a what's that phrase a camel is a horse designed by a committee like the the more the more disparate and the more frequent the feedback you get, the more you're kind of adjusting course as you go and if you're thinking about I think Tim Ferriss has this idea of like if one person absolutely loves something that he puts in a book, it stays there. Even if everyone else hates it. And you're that one person too. If you absolutely love it and it makes you feel good to create, then that's that's valid. And it will represent something uh, more meaningful, hopefully.
0: I I'm I hope so. And and you know, as a person who's focused on on lifestyle business and lifestyle as a, as a combination, I can say that I am a much more content person today than I was a year and a half ago. Yeah. And, it's and, and to me, that's, you know, what, what is life? You know, these, the, the one thing too, is that the winds, they, they last for a day. It's, it's, you spend a year in the process and then the film premiere or the award lasts for a day or two days, or maybe a few weeks if you're very, very lucky, but then it's over and you're thinking, okay, well, what's next? So if you can't enjoy getting there, then what are you doing? Yeah.
1: Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Yeah. You're thinking about why did you start this in the business, uh, in the first place and it's for freedom it was so you could do what you wanted when you wanted and that like it's so distracting to chase the, shi- the shiny objects to chase what's expedient and go like well this fulfills better metrics and if i was going to get investors they'd look for this and i can see that kind of um that step-by-step iterative pro uh, progress but does that light your soul on fire is this something that you would do, regardless of the reward of the outcome? If no one ever saw this, would you still do it? And those are the kind of questions that are so much more valuable when you look at when you look back at your life and think, "How did I spend my years?" I'm guessing it's those kind of questions that are the ones that we resonate with and we really truly want to answer
0: yeah totally and 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 if I'm honest with myself, I would say that you know, the, the previous five years that we've gone through, you know, for four of those five years, I was, was not enjoying the process in the way that I should. Sure. I was out adventuring still. I was, I was around the world and doing my thing, but, but yeah, you see, you know, that was perfect. The, 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 a camel is a horse designed by committee. I mean, it's, you can get so caught up in those sorts of things. And I, and I had to, you know, it's, it's, it's also a little bit about trusting yourself. And I think that when you, when you fail, um, and it can be for many, many reasons, but when you fail, you, 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 you wonder about yourself and can I trust myself? Am I still good at this? I mean, you know, these questions come into your mind and, and, through this sort of enjoying the process mindset, I've I've learned to trust myself again, and I and I and I go back to and think about the freedom chair, which was made, you know, twelve years ago, um, and I say no, I. The character was great, but I but I went with my gut so much with that film. I didn't have so many people around me to give me all this little minutiae feedback and and i just went with a feeling and and you have to trust that you have to trust that 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 and, and and you have to be okay with it you have to be okay like if if you make a film you make a project you you do a business choice whatever it is that you feel good about then you have to be okay and you can't always just rely on um someone else's feedback for your personal satisfaction and and if, if you you know i'm with your podcast you, you interview all kinds of successful entrepreneurs and and people that do good things and and failure is is a consistent theme i know that i know that the people that that we view as the most successful people in the world are are constantly failing i i was i just you know if we, if we look at the, the biggest pop star in the world right now is Taylor Swift. My daughter is absolutely bonkers for Taylor Swift. It's, it's consumes our life within, within my house. And her movie just came out and did whatever a hundred million dollars on opening weekend. And it's a concert movie that was turned down by everyone in Hollywood. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, there's these stories are everywhere no matter how successful the person is.
1: Yeah it's interesting you mentioned the podcast then as well because i for years pushed that the podcast that was perfect for my perfect niche that i'd kind of done all the calculations and the analytical approach and kind of taken so many um so many pieces of feedback and they just completely slowly step by step pushed me away from what was truly me and it got to that point where one business was, it never really failed, but it was just stagnant. And it was never going to go anywhere where I went, fuck it. Like, I want to do something that is me. And I want to speak to people like you who have shaped my life in some way. And I want to speak to people like Nikolai Sharma, who just, who, again, shaped my life in some way. And like entrepreneurs and business owners and interesting people who have got an interesting story to tell. And because of that, I'm stoked when I get to speak to people like you or anyone else that I've had in the podcast. Like I'm like fired up for the conversation, whereas before it's like, okay, now I've got to tick the boxes and it becomes way less. I think people can A, hear when I'm not interested in people and B, like it's the process again. Like if I'm stoked by the conversations I could have two, three times a week, then fantastic. I win and everyone else wins too. And I create a more valuable product in the long run.
0: Yeah and it's 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 authenticity too right it's being true to yourself and who you mm-hmm. are and in a world that is so overly curated and you know the latest tiktok craze yeah. or social media has to be done this way and you have to say it this and you have to use this song and it, it's it's so fresh now to just have mm-hmm. find someone who's an original who's being themselves who's who's speaking their voice and mm-hmm. and there is no perfect voice and you know like we've been talking about it all all through this this chat is that that we're flawed and that's what makes us interesting and that's what makes us unique and and sometimes you just got to go with it
1: yeah absolutely a few kind of quick fire, quicker fire questions i really wanted to ask you firstly best cool war in whistler or black
0: SQR and Whistler or Blackcomb—it uh, has to be DOA, which is uh, a yeah. a little bit of a ski tour off the resort, but it's it's the one that you see from the south side of Seventh Heaven on Blackcomb, and, and it is just a cul- yeah, just a cut through Blackcomb Peak, steep, yeah. long, narrow. It's got all the all the elements.
1: It's a stunning. It's the one that catches your eye. Yes, <laughs> you look at it and go, "Yes, I'll be having that." Um, and then, what do you think? The Have you seen anything that is that's caught your eye in terms of ski? Tech development in the last two years that you could you think could do something similar to the twin tip skis?
0: Hmm.
1: No. <laughs> no. Nothing that revolutionary. Short
0: answer is no. I mean, I think the last big big innovation that came was was the uh, the shift binding, yeah. and not not to pump Solomon's tires, and, and because I had I was part of the development of that but that actually revolutionized the way that you can use the mountain as a skier and and transition into the backcountry without having to have specific bindings and and or big giant heavy plates and all these sorts of things um i think that that skiing uh i mean there is still innovation happening but but those innovations that that actually change things that everybody wants to copy and and do their own version of i think that I, I i haven't seen anything for a little while
1: it seems almost like it's in a process of refinement and putting more um more nuance in each like you look at the availability of skis and now there's a lot of skis that are coming out that are so like that perf for me perfect balance of like hard charging in the backcountry but not so heavy that they're gonna destroy my legs on the way up it seems like that is really kind of coming into its own right now and it seems like that more like shaving edges to to get something a bit more subtle along the way
0: yeah for sure i i, I mean there are enough ski companies and, and enough small ski companies that have pushed the the limits in terms of design and shape and and construction and materials so far now that that i feel like you know i don't know if you remember but um you know, ten years ago, ski widths got really, really wide. You know, mm-hmm. we were in the 120 up to 130 mils underfoot. All that's kind of come back. Like I feel like we had it. You know, it was ten years ago we had this this big explosion of shapes and designs. And and like you said, now it's kind of more being refined, and we're 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 working on the small things that that help. But um, yeah. for sure, there'll be some sort of big innovation that comes along the way but right now i I think we're in that refinement phase for sure
1: can't wait and then what do you think about the growth of backcountry skiing and the exposure to risk and everything being on social media and how kind of more accessible backcountry skiing is now and how much more obvious it is or publicized its
0: i i'm i'm a fan of the growth of backcountry skiing i well first of all i i think the more people that are out in the outdoors and and in the mountains um, the better I think that that out, outdoor as outdoors people as people that that prioritize fresh air, we're m- gonna be better stewards of the planet. Um, I think the planet is in some trouble or at least our existence on the planet is in trouble right now and and we need people that are out there in the elements um and and seeing what's going on using their voices to try and to try and and save what we've got and so. It's, I'm kind of in the more the merrier camp. I'm also very encouraged by the, the information being passed along through the media outlets, through professional athletes, through the marketing arms of our sport, where you know, avalanches used to be something that were glorified in ski films or or just totally avoided. like if you had an incident, it didn't ever make the film and now i feel like there's so much more education and you know people are posting things and saying things like i'm posting this this was a mistake we made but i want you to be able to see what we did wrong so that you can learn from it and and that sort of messaging is is much more frequent than it used to be which is which is really good and and i feel like the average user that i'm seeing in the backcountry at least here in whistler is far more educated than we were when we started and and they're making a lot of good decisions. Um, and I don't have direct stats in front of me, but I can say, uh, anecdotally at least, that that backcountry incidents with avalanches and, and deaths and, and injuries are pretty flat considering the yeah. uh, uptick in users. As and also decreasing. Yes. Yeah, so the percentage is decreasing. And also, uh, you know, there was, there was a lot of fear over the last five years with, with all the sort of the newbies out in the back country that, that they would be getting themselves into trouble. But, um, once again, at least anecdotally, it seems that the people that are getting into trouble are actually very experienced and it's not the newbies that are, that are having the accidents, at least around in, in, in our area here. And so, um, you know that that's encouraging it's encouraging that 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 the newcomers are taking the right precautions and they're not pushing as hard um it's sort of that more experienced user that seems to be out there uh uh pushing so all this stuff to me is fairly encouraging and i and i haven't seen a lot of the downside that we that we feared when yeah. when those numbers started to rise
1: yeah, i think that dunning kruger curve is scary with this where people get a little bit of confidence a little bit of experience and Tim Howe spoke about it on my podcast about the um, Dunning-Kruger effect in base jumping and it's like that three-year point where you're like oh I've got this like I've got enough experience and like also anecdotally entirely I spent just on three years living in Vancouver and obviously skied BC a fair amount during that time and coming back to Europe and watching the kind of or experiencing the kind of questions you get from people ducking the ropes in um in europe where you're like oh do you have transceiver and they're like oh what oh (laughs) okay that's interesting that's that's really interesting to see the difference and i think there's some cultural difference between like definitely bc and france for example um and what goes along with that but it's i don't know whether it's Catching up on how accessible it is, but it's interesting to see that, that discrepancy between areas.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, and yeah, Dunning Kruger is interesting. um You know, I've I've seen it. I guess I've seen it more in just people being assholes than I have yeah. in in being dangerous. uh Just sort of know it alls. Like, yeah, you see someone out there without a transceiver or any safety equipment, and you you know, I try not to be the the mean coach guy in the backcountry I kind of give people the benefit of the doubt or I'll subtly say you know hey um if you don't have a pack then then um this might be the better way to go here just to try and like steer them to to toward the safer terrain but um but yeah you do run into those people who think they've got it dialed out there and and uh as someone who's spent you know the past 30 plus years of my life skiing in the backcountry mm-hmm. I certainly would never feel like I have it dialed out there. I, I yeah. tend to, I tend to ride the, 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 the cautious side of things for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then final question, what would you put in the bucket list for adventurepreneurs? So if you could put together an adventure bucket list of things that you just got to do once in a lifetime, what would you put in there? Oh
0: yeah. Hmm. I mean, there are a few things. I, I I guess my bucket list would be a little bit more skier centric. Mm-hmm. Um, there's certain there's certain places and and things that if you have the opportunity to do in your life, you should. If you're you know if you're a passionate skier, I would say that you need to go to Chamonix in France. And and it's not even necessarily the skiing in Chamonix that that's important. It's just driving into that town and seeing those mountains and seeing that the lifts go. To those peaks, uh, that is just something, especially for North Americans who don't, you know, ski in Europe much. That it that is something that'll just melt your brain. Uh, it's it's unthinkable, um, given the way that that North American ski hills are designed. So that that would be high on the list. Um, I think skiing in Japan is something that is is really special, at least to me. Uh, the place where where it's it's probably the world's greatest snow machine it's hard to imagine a place where it can literally snow a foot every single night for the entire season. And, and just every day is, is a refresh and the food and the Mm -hmm. the onsen experience. It is just something that's, that's really special to me. And then, um, and then the Andes skiing in, in South America in what is the middle of, you know, the Northern hemisphere summer, Mm -hmm is a is a unique and special experience and and I I go down to Portillo in Chile every year and and do a ski camp down there with with Chris Davenport and a handful of others and and um it's something that never gets old to me it's it's one of those places where the mountains once again are just massive and it's just this sort of otherworldly experience so those would probably be the three at the top of my list nice man Nice.
1: Yeah. The thing that, like, actually recertifying that those two places I need to go to, <laughs> Japan and the Andes, need to get there soon. And um, the one thing that definitely France has, Japan definitely has too, that BC's lacking is definitely the food on the hill. <laughs> like, man, being able to go get some like amazing food on the side of the hill is something that, for example, Whistler just hasn't mastered yet, man.
0: Well, yeah. And th- you know what's really sad here in Whistler is that the food on the hill used to be really good. Did it? really good like i would eat lunch on the hill every day because it was it was like eating in a restaurant in the valley but since a certain group took over the resort the on-hill food is absolute garbage now and way yeah, overpriced yeah. garbage but yeah um, absolutely but absolutely. yeah which is a shame but you are right um italy for uh for mm-hmm. some
1: some pasta washed her out nothing oh. like it I yeah, like so for the one person that's listening to this who doesn't already follow you on social media where can people find you and follow your work uh
0: i guess i'm most active on probably on instagram um mm. at mike d ski i've been i've been i used to be fairly active on twitter x now i guess as it's called but i'm actually trying to wean myself off of it i find it just too much Wise. of a negative space these days uh and i'm trying to get onto facebook a little more but i kind of Checked out of Facebook quite a few years ago, but I'm trying to get back there. So, But Instagram is it would generally be my most reliable place.
1: Perfect. Well, thank you so much, man. Massively appreciate your time.
0: No, really nice to talk to you, Tom. Thank you.
1: Join us on a powerful journey with Once We Were Warriors, a documentary that transcends boundaries and speaks to the souls of our veterans. We need your support to turn this vision into reality. Once We Were Warriors reveals the path to recovery for injured Royal Marines commandos in the French Alps. Produced by former servicemen, it offers the most authentic storytelling. This documentary dives deep into the lives of those who have served, challenging stereotypes and advocating for veterans' care as we approach a decade since the end of combat operations in Afghanistan. But to make this vision a reality, we need your support and your funding. Support us on a crowdfunding campaign at www.oncewewerewarriorsfilm.com to help us make this documentary a reality and give a voice to those who have sacrificed so much. Join us in making a difference. Together, we can rewrite the narrative for our veterans. Once more, that link is www.oncewewerewarriorsfilm.com.